Hey, it's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with today's conversation about resilience. But first, if you're interested in creating a better life, having a better career, please visit kintsugipodcast.com and grab your free workbook on how to have a better life. In it, you'll discover tips and routines so you can find the energy for the things and the people who matter most so you can create a better tomorrow and create the life and career you desire. Well, before we dive into resistance, and I definitely want to talk about the warrior archetype, the series that you're doing on Instagram, because I've uh, followed it. I do have some binging to do over the weekend to catch up. I'm not totally all the way through it, but I want to offer, this is a good opportunity for me to thank you because I first found your work through Seth Godin's Alt-MBA. Yeah, yeah. I was Alt-MBA 4, and that's when I first found the War of Art. Uh-huh. And your book helped me write my memoir, ah. Chef Creating Better Tomorrows, which is about my last bad day story. So, oh, right. um, yes. so thank you for writing what you wrote because it helped me write what I wrote. Well, thank you for getting through the incredible ordeal that you got through. I had it off to you, you know. Well, thank you. So I had a question about that though. And obviously Seth is a prolific writer as you are. Did you know each other? And was that something that Seth reached out to you and said, hey, Steve, Stephen, we'd love to put your book in our program. Was it a pleasant surprise? Uh, how did that come about? Boy, you know, it's one of those things like where you have a friend and you can't remember how you originally... I think I sort of... Uh, my partner, my business partner, Sean Coyne and I, when we first were starting our little publishing company, I think Seth was like one of the earliest people using the web, you know? And uh, we kind of just heard of him and he seemed to be so smart and to know all that sort of stuff that we some, we reached out to him somehow and like had lunch with him. And uh, he's just kind of been a friend ever since. And he, he asked us to do uh, a book after the War of Art came out. Seth, uh, I'm probably giving you much too long of an answer here. Like, it's fascinating for me. So I, I love it. After the War of Art came out, I think Seth found that and liked it. And we became kind of friends. And then he had this project with Amazon called the Domino Project, where they kind of co-published some stuff. And he reached out to us. He said, would you write a book for us? You know, a little sort of war of art. And we we pitched one idea to him. He absolutely hated it. And then the next idea that we pitched became that book, Do the Work, that he then published on the the Domino Project and um, through Amazon. And so um, we've just kind of been friends ever since. But Seth, to me, is, uh, you know, there's nobody like him. I mean, what he's doing, and not to me, just his um, technical stuff and and, uh, marketing stuff, but the ethical and moral aspect of what he's doing. You know, there's, there's no real voice like him out there. He's an amazing guy. And he's got two young sons that are just as amazing as he is, and his wife, too. So, and the Alt-MBA, I mean, who came up with that? I mean, what an incredible, great thing. And Seth's got a million of these things that are are going. So God bless him. He's an amazing guy. I know. He he really is. I 
you know, I took his MBA. I had followed him for a number of years, like a whole bunch of people. And I was at this point where I left my corporate life of 22 years. I was an executive. I had an identity. And I decided to follow a little seed that was planted when I was in the ICU recovering from my accident. Uh-huh. Yeah. And decided to do the work I do today to help, you know, sort of prevent bad moments from turning into a bad day. <laughs> and I decided to take his alt MBA. Again, found your book, found some other wonderful books. But I, you know, I think what Seth is doing is, you know, he's always innovating. He's always trying to make it about other people. He he lives his message. And I think there's some some beautiful alignment there where sometimes who you see online is not who you get in person. And the thing I love about Seth is that there's that alignment there and with Akimbo and his workshops and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. And where I live is only about yeah, three miles from the way the crow flies to where he lives. Uh, we just, we're separated by the Hudson River. I'm in New Jersey. He's in New York. You know, I grew up near there myself. I don't know if you know that, but I, I grew up in, in Westchester County in Pleasantville. And oh, yeah. we used to play, Seth is in Hastings, and our league, we used to play Hastings, you know, so, so uh, I know that area really well. That's very, very cool. Yeah, I live in Bergen County, so I can get now over to Westchester because they opened the Tappan Zee up with a bikeway. Ah. So, uh, so actually this weekend, I'll be riding my bike over in Westchester County and uh, seeing a different part of the area. So... Um, let me ask. Let me ask you, Michael. How did the Alt MBA impact you? Did it change anything? Did you learn stuff that you didn't know after all your corporate, you know, experience? That's a great question, Steve. Yeah, in so many levels. So I believe that things happen through conversation. Sometimes it's the written word. Sometimes it's the spoken word. And sometimes it's the, it's the conversation you have with yourself. And for me. Like I had all this confidence as a corporate executive. I had a team of a thousand people. I had I was responsible for more money than I ever thought I would be responsible for coming out of college. Uh-huh. But when I came into being an entrepreneur, I knew it was my purpose. Like I lived for a reason. I survived my accident. But I still had some, I had some doubt. The the resistance popped in my head. And Seth's work really in the MBA really illustrated to me the importance of putting your work out there. And and in today's world, you always have a chance to make an iteration upon an iteration. So, and and you get into a rhythm, sort of like, you know, sort of like how you do or other writers do. You like, you sit down and you write and you write a little bit more and you get into a, a rhythm of it and you put your work out there. And then however it is, you get another shot at making it better. So what it meant for me was it helped me shift the conversation I was having with myself about the work I wanted to do and how I wanted to change lives. So I totally recommend it to a whole bunch of people. The pace was quick. It's intense. There's no doubt about it. It's 30 days and you go all in. He's purposely designed it that way. It's pretty much a full-time job while you're doing it, isn't it? It really is. And it was it was difficult. I got to the end and I'll be honest, because I went in, I went in pressure testing, should I write this memoir of mine? I was so hesitant. I was like, I don't know. Is anyone going to read it? You know, when you put when you put your memoir out there, you're you're putting sort of your naked self out there. And if people don't read it or don't like it, it's that's a pretty big blow to your your ego, right? I got that pretty early on in my experience, like in the first 10 days of it. So at the end, I was like, well, I got what I wanted to get out of it. I had to stay in the 
in the churn, if you will. I'm glad I did. Uh, but it is hard to do if you have a full-time job because you're delivering projects and, and content three times a week with a group. And you're also delivering feedback to people. So you get really good at providing feedback or feed forward, as maybe a Marshall Goldsmith would say. And you're really good at listening to criticism and how to improve your work. So um, great program. Highly recommend it. Again, I think without your book and without that course, I may not have published my book. Oh, really? Wow. Huh? Yeah, well, I know that course is... I haven't taken it, but a friend of mine took it and it was just like dominating his life. So uh, it's a serious thing, serious commitment. Yeah. Yeah, it's no joke. You definitely, it, it takes probably a good 12, 12 to 15 hours of your your life a week. And so if you're working a full-time job, it can be, that can be difficult to find that. with. But I'm, I'm glad I did it. It was obviously, I'm, I'm more than glad I did it. So, uh, but yeah, thanks for asking. So I want to talk a little bit about your Instagram series, The Warrior Archetype, and the inspiration behind it. Certainly, you, you, you sort of, it, I think in episode number one, you profile the gates of fire and also the war of art, almost as a external resistance and internal resistance. But for those that may not have seen it yet on Instagram, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about their inspiration behind it and just these two books of yours and how it might play into all of it. Because I've been fascinated by the series as I've been watching it. Granted, I have a few to catch up on, as I mentioned earlier, but would love for you to talk a little bit more about it. It sort of came out of this COVID period that we're in where, you know, uh, people are stuck at home or get a lot, you know, and are on, you know, going onto the screens, whatever it was. And I just thought, you know, what could I do? What, what do I know about, you know, that I could do? So uh, I thought I'd do this kind of series that, like the two books of mine that you held up, one is about, Gates of Fire is about the Battle of Thermopylae, the 300 Spartans that held off the Persians exactly 2,500 years ago this year. And the War of Art is about the internal battle that we fight as writers and as artists to try and get our stuff out. And so I thought I would try to kind of combine the two because I think they're the same book. One is, as you said, one is about fighting an external enemy in a war, and the other is about fighting the internal enemy. And the, the, the um, you know, our own tendency to self-sabotage and to procrastinate and all the things you went through, you know, working on your book, wondering, is anybody going to read it? You know, what am I, am I wasting my time, et cetera. And to me, the link between the two is, is the thinking kind of like a warrior. You know, the, the virtues of a warrior are just are, you know, um, the willing embracing of adversity, courage, patience, you know, uh, a love for your brothers and sisters, that kind of thing. And those kind of virtues express themselves in the external world as a warrior, if you were in the Navy SEALs or something like that. But also if you're writing a book or you're doing any kind of creative or entrepreneurial thing, that's those same virtues, you know, have to happen in here. So this series, I just sort of thought, let me do short little five minute deals. And my girlfriend, Diana, films them. It's just me on camera. You know, we kind of get up in the morning, we drive around, find interesting backgrounds. And and that's that's kind of what it is. And it's going to be we're going to do, I've got like 50 scripts written. I think we're up to about number 20 now. And so this is going to 
go on into the new year. And it's just been kind of fun and, you know, uh, to put it out there and see if anybody liked it. Well, I, I definitely like it. So 50 scripts, I take it, is it more of an outline? Because the sense I get is that you're not necessarily like reading a teleprompter or whatnot, but you have a general idea of where you want the five-minute video to go. Here's a pile of scripts, you know. So they are actual scripts, but you're right. I just sort of, ah. you know, if you notice, almost all of them are in one take. And I, because we, we don't know how to cut, you know. So I just try to remember. I just read it to myself and then try to remember it and ad lib as I go along. So we actually, there's a transcript that accompanies each thing. But the transcript a lot of times is completely different from what I say because I forgot what I was going to say and I'm making it up as I go along. Well, I love that. That's in the same spirit. I do a weekly blog, a video blog, just in my backyard. It's supposed to, the vibe is you and me talking about something important for leadership, business, life, uh, much like you know some of your backyard shots. It's one take and it's all nature. So if a plane flies overhead or a dog barks or the garbage man comes, the listener gets all of that and probably more. So... Uh, yeah, that's us too, you know, and the wind becomes a big factor. If there's too much wind, you can't hear anything. Yeah, yeah, so that's really interesting. So, well, I do a lot of work around diversity and inclusion, around a lot around female advocacy. So I loved the story about Paralea, and I didn't know if you could relay that story about her. I think it was in episode number two or three that you share Paralea's story, and do you think it has any type of connection to like current current life known as 2020 with COVID and everything else that we have going on? Um, I don't, I'm not sure, but I'll tell the story if you like. Yeah, that would be great. This story comes from that book that you just held up, Gates of Fire. And uh, it's it was under the heading of Spartan women in the ancient days. And... Uh, the true story of the 300 Spartans was that King Leonidas picked 300 warriors to go to the pass and to hold the pass of Thermopylae as long as they could against 2 million Persians. And they were supported by 4,000 allies from the other Greek cities. But uh, one thing that nobody knows to this day is why Leonidas picked those specific 300 people. So, or three, you know, 300 warriors. And when I was writing, the, I'm going to give you the long version of this, Michael. No problem. It's all good. When I had written Gates of Fire and I had a publisher at Doubleday and it was all done and ready to go. And I had these two female editors, Nita Taublib and Kate Misiak. And they called me into their office and they said, we love the Spartan women. We got to have one more scene. Give us one more scene, you know, because they're so great. And I, of course, completely resisted that. I said, no way the book is done, blah, 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 blah. But about a week later, I, this kind of scene with Paralia came to me, and it has turned out to be the most popular, or the, the one I get the most letters about. So anyway, here's the scene. Paralia is a, a, a lady Spartan of the officer class. And in the story, the fictional story, Leonidas picked both her husband and her son to be among the 300. And so she was upset by this. And she went to Leonidas's wife, Gorgo, and asked for a, meet, for, you know, for a, a meeting with the king. 
And when she got to the meeting, she asked him, you know, in a great uh, state of distress, why have you singled me out for this double portion of grief? And so Leonidas answers her. He says, the whole city wonders why I chose those 300. And he says, nobody knows. I have not told them. And I never will tell them, but I will tell you. And he says to, to her that uh, we all, and he, Leonidas, is also going with the 300. And he says, this is a suicide mission. All of the members have been chosen, and the warriors have been chosen as fathers of living sons. We all know we're going to die. I'm going to die. Your husband's going to die, and your son's going to die. And why have I done this? He said, because this is uh, this what action that we're taking at the pass is just a holding action. We don't expect to win. We don't. All we're trying to do is delay. But we're also trying to inspire the rest of the Greek cities to rally and to come together and fight. So he says, "What's going to happen when the news comes that all three hundred are dead and that the Persians are advancing?" He says, our city, Sparta, is then going to look to the women of those 300, the mothers, the wives, the daughters. And if those women fall apart in grief and whatever, then Sparta's going to fall apart. And if Sparta falls apart, the rest of Greece is going to fall apart. But if those women can hold together and bear up under their grief dry-eyed, then Sparta will hold together and if Sparta stands, the rest of the Greeks will stand. So he says to Paralia, I chose these warriors not for their courage, but for the courage of their women. And I picked you because you can bear up under this double portion of grief. And so Paralia at that point breaks down and emotionally in tears. And then she gets herself together and she says, Thank you, you know, for telling me this. And these tears of mine are the last tears that the sun will ever see. So that, that was kind of the, the story, meaning, of course, that she'll cry again, but nobody will know about it. And so that was the story of Parley. I'm sorry it took too long to tell it, but it's a long story. No, it's great. I, I do love the grit and the strength and the perseverance in, in the story that we're going to be able to overcome our toughest moments. And I do look at this, I, I look at this moment in time known as 2020. I'd love to ask you too, just your perspective of what's happening this year. But I see the strength of the women around us as a way to get us through this moment, because this is certainly a, a topic this year of health, among other things. And many of the women in our lives serve as sort of, a, in a corporate sense, a, the chief medical officer at home. And you know they they probably you know they're the ones if the kids have a an ache they go to mom. Uh, sometimes when the husband or partner has an ache and they go to their their wives. And so I see I just see the beautiful strength of women maybe as a way to get out of this moment and the lessons you know the lessons learned so we can apply it to creating that better normal if you will. Well, one of the things that Leonidas says in his in his talk to Paralia is he says that men's pain, the pain of being in the battle and dying, is really the easiest kind. It's, it's short and it's over. But he says women's, the women's burden is kind of endless. The grief, 
and the you know of the loss of the thing and the and the the knowledge that they have to be the strength of the city, just as you were saying, to support everybody. That they're really, you know, men have have glory or whatever that you want to say, but women's contribution is always for someone else, always for a child, for the husband, for the father, for the older person in the city, for somebody that's struggling. And uh, so he he really does make the case to Paralia. And I think this was a true part of the real Spartan world, not just a fictional thing, that the women really were the backbone of the, of the whole society and that we really were the strength of the whole society. And I think, I think you're right. I hadn't even thought about it that way, Michael. In this period that we're in, it is women's strength. And I think from the point of view of a man, we have to sort of go to our internal mother or our internal wife, our internal sister, our inter- that, that, that strong female part of ourselves that, um, that endures its pain and childbirth. You know, in ancient Sparta, they only allowed a name on a gravestone for two instances, a man that was a warrior that was killed in battle or a woman who died in childbirth. Otherwise, there was no name on a gravestone. So, I don't know, there's something really metaphorically very apt uh, to that situation for the present thing that we're going through. It is like the pain of childbirth. It, it really is. My wife is a childbirth doula, so she's a labor. I probably know a little bit more about the birthing process than your average guy, just because it's within our household. But it is, it's, you know, it, it is a journey. There's transformation, there's resistance. That It's all of that. Women go through the laboring process. On the topic of 2020, how are you viewing the moment? You know, I look at resistance, you know, going back to the war of art as a natural part of life. You know, I think sometimes what I've grown to come to realize about my accident, this is the perspective I've chosen for it, is that I went through the bloody hell I went through. It, it was happening for me, not to me. I didn't think of that at first. I thought I was the victim. And then a mentor said that this may be a chance to look at things a little bit differently, that this happened for you. So I've chosen to look at COVID as the the first spark, as something happening for us to shine a spotlight on some of the things that we need to address uh, on the planet in this country, that the resistance sometimes shows up to give us a little bit of a pause to think about how we want to move forward and hopefully move forward in togetherness and unity. But I'd love to get your take on it, you know, just from, you know, you're out in California, I'm here on the East Coast, but you know, we're, we're sharing this moment, maybe not together in the same community, but as two humans on the same planet. So what's your take on all this as it relates to resistance and all that, Jess? Well, let me ask you this, Michael, when you say 2020, do you mean strictly the COVID situation or the political situation? That's a parallel to it. I look at the four big... Well, we'll say five things, because I think many of the things that we're dealing with current day are more human than political, but they're certainly politics. So I look at COVID, I look at equity and equality, Black Lives Matter. I look at the environmental factors out West with the wildfires. I look at the economic hardship. And you can see the shirt on over my corner that's like, one of the things I use to get through my recovery, I call it grabbing a PBR, which does not stand for Pabst Blue Ribbon, but 
It stands for pause, breathe, and reflect. And when you think about those four topics, how COVID hits our respiratory system, how if you've lost your job, you're probably holding your breath as you go to the cash flow machine. If you have the environmental factors out west, the the heat and the fire would like burn your lungs, right? So that's about your breath. And then George Floyd obviously lost his life when his breath was restricted. So I have this common thread of wrath with those four. So I see them as human topics, but certainly the umbrella that I think all of it sort of fits under is the political mumbo jumbo and obviously the election coming up. So (laughs) we can add that as a fifth perhaps, which could be a lot of hot air which is, you know, because of the politicians, who knows? I view this current uh, era with a great deal of distress. Thinking back, I was uh, a young guy in the Vietnam era, which, you know, at that time seemed to be the greatest sort of revolutionary, you know, and partisan split that, that had ever happened. And that really was the first time you know, that that really became clear that there were two Americas, you know. And in those days, it was the hippies versus the hard hats, you know. I'm sure you're too young to remember that, but it was a big split. And uh, I'm a little too young for that, but I do remember yeah. it through my, the lens of my parents. <laughs> and, uh, but I think that this era really eclipses that. And um, to me, it's for the United States, it's the, it's the, the greatest challenge since the Civil War, I think. And it seems to, and you know, three weeks from now, four weeks from now, we may be into unprecedented territory. I'm pretty sure we will. So for me, I sort of, my challenge is to try to remember to not let partisanship rule the world, you know, and to try to somehow find a common language or a common ground where we can, we can bridge this split that's that's in the country. I mean, the whole COVID thing, when it comes down to masks or no masks, it's just really, it's been a wake-up call. COVID and, and the whole situation politically has exposed stuff that we thought was maybe over and is not over at all. And um, so we're in a really, uh, what can I say, make it or break it moment for this country. And... Um, um, myself, I'm I'm just trying to hang on to my love for everybody as fellow Americans and hope that we can somehow bridge that that partisan gap. How that relates to resistance, I don't really know. Are you cautiously optimistic? Yes, I'm cautiously optimistic. My faith is in the basic decency of Americans on the face-to-face level. You know, it's very easy to to hate the other, quote unquote, when you're just categorizing them as somebody on the, you know, stereotype, whatever. But it's hard to do that when you're face to face with somebody. So I'm hoping that uh, that the, that decency will um, overcome the forces of division that are being fanned, the flames of which are being fanned. I, I agree with you. I, I, I share where you're coming from. I have moments of distress. I remain cautiously optimistic. I don't want to be naively so because I do think this is a moment for the heart and soul of our country. I think this is a... We, we are living this history. And I, when you go through something so transforming, it's, it's hard. 
You know, I, I, I know I went through, it was my own personal journey, but with my accident, a lot of different emotions we felt in the beginning of all this, the fear, the anxiety, the worry about who will we become because we know that life as we once knew it is over, right? When you go through something as big as this, and we still haven't yet to like grab on, grab on to the new. But I love what you said about you know, sort of going in for us guys, almost going internal with sort of a nurturing aspect and tapping into maybe a little bit more of our feminine side. Because at this whole moment, we've lost something. We're all going through one form of grieving or another. We're going through a, a grieving process because we've lost either a sense of normal or for some, who they've lost family and friends through all this. Uh, so we are, I think we're grieving as a nation and we don't necessarily know where to place our grief sometimes. And it sort of comes out, at, the pain of grief comes out as anger or other emotions. If you look at this in terms of a, of a story, you know, there's a, in any movie, let's say, there's a thing called an inciting incident. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but it's when, you know, some great upsetting event happens. You know, a story in a movie, let's say, always starts out in kind of the present and you get kind of a setup. You know, like if it's the movie Rocky, you see Rocky, he's kind of a bum, he goes to the gym, he smokes cigarettes, he hangs out on the street, you know. And then a, a moment comes, an inciting incident, and like in Rocky, it's when the champ, Apollo Creed, picks Rocky's name out of the book, and he says, I'm going to give this guy, the Italian, the Italian stallion, a shot at the title. And that that's the moment when the story starts and Rocky's whole world is turned upside down, and this whole COVID thing and all of the partisanship that's going on is sort of an inciting incident for this whole country. You know, we've crossed a threshold We've left the ordinary world. We're in the upside down world right now. And we don't know where where it's going. And I think, you know, in many ways, if I want to be optimistic, like like your story, Michael, was a case of, you know, you were a, a, a corporate executive. I'm sure that it was something that you believed in from a little boy. Your father probably, your mother probably said, you know, be a good student, get a job, succeed, go up the ladder, bump it, bump it, bump, right? And then this advance came in from left field, right? And suddenly you realize, wow, this life that I thought was so great, maybe I need to rethink it. And so you've reinvented yourself as a whole other person, but you had to go through an amazing hero's journey and odyssey and internal transformation. I think that the whole country is in a state like that right now. You know, we've, we've seen that um, the system doesn't work. You know, government is not capable of responding to this to this crisis, to the COVID crisis or anything. Right. It becomes, you know, the Senate can't pass a bill. You know, the president totally bails on everything and just, you know, throws up his hands and comes up with a bunch of bullshit, you know, while 200,000 people are dying. And meanwhile, we see that on a social level, we can't handle it either. Just uh, the country splits in half. And nobody's reaching across to the other side. And it's at, and so we're all, the good news, I think, is that, uh, you know, what you're doing with people, what I'm doing with my little, you know, warrior archetype series and other things is we're trying on our own grassroots level to come up, to reinvent ourselves in some way, or at least to take a step towards something 
Um, you know, I sort of come back to Lincoln's second inaugural address where he says, you know, with uh, malice toward none, with charity towards all, that was kind of an amazing moment. Of course, it didn't really work. You know, it followed was Reconstruction and Jim Crow and all that. But we are at that point where there are two Americas and somehow we have to find a way to, to bridge the two. It's like, I almost hope for an invasion from outer space because at least that would bring us together, you know, <laughs> if we had some common enemy. But how do you make that bridge? I think what you're just saying, it is a feminine thing. We've got to go to our internal mother, wife, sister, daughter that is capable of nurturing and of love and of transcending you know, the male ask, the male response is kind of that warrior response, you know? It's to take up arms and, you know, face the other people across the lines at Gettysburg. You know, but the female, the maternal response is to reach out and find common ground. And I think somehow we got to do that. That's our, that's our challenge in Act 2 after the inciting incident has kicked us into this new world. I know, and that might be something for after the election, but I do think love, the motherly, the feminine love has the ability to get over sort of the masculine fear. And right now we have, we just have a society that has a lot of fear on multiple levels. And when you have that type of powerful emotion, you get some pretty wonky behavior and you have the two worlds. So somehow we have to find a way through it and, you know, almost having a common enemy i think way back like you know cold war time there was that foe of the soviet union yeah. like we all sort of came together and rallied and now when the wall fell and communism at least from that eastern bloc fell everything went sideways and we started looking internal to who we are as a country and then there was a lot of divisiveness i think that popped up after after the wall fell so uh, i think my hope is that once the election comes, we can at least take a, another breath, another exhale. It won't be over. We still have a lot of hard work in front of us, but hopefully tap into a little bit more of the nurturing love to overcome some of the fear that's out there. So one question, just as we sort of finish up. So I know as an artist, as you are, as a writer, you still deal with resistance. And I, you know, I've gone back to you know, talk to other people or I've read up on other people that deal with, say, imposter syndrome, which I, I'm assuming you would consider a element of the resistance. So advice for others as we go forward, how do you personally get through it? Uh, does it, I imagine it never gets easy, but does it get easier to dance with it as you create more and put more of your work and your art out there? This is an answer really simple. No, it doesn't get any easier. It never gets any easier. And, you know, to um, maybe to tie this into what we're talking about, another thing that, uh, or another um, challenge or transformation that each of us as individuals is facing these days, when we talk about when the wall fell and we didn't have the Soviet Union as an enemy, I mean, in many ways, the human race is, we're, we're pretty, like we're like one-celled animals. We're pretty stupid, you know, and we need an enemy. And as long as there's an enemy, even if you think about the tribes in Afghanistan, Pashtunistan, they thrive on having enemies. 
as long as they got somebody they could hate. Even think of the um, 9-11, the whole Islamic terrorism thing. That Their enemy is us, the great Satan, and it binds everybody together. And even after 9-11, when uh, George W. Bush and that whole establishment had to create an enemy, you know, that wasn't even there, you know, Iraq, you know, or the enemy was maybe terrorism, but it was really abstruse. But what do we do when we don't have an enemy? That is the real deal. That's the real question that a lot of us are dealing with. Like, because then we realize that the enemy is between our own ears, you know, and that, that enemy, which I call resistance with a capital R, is all of those forces like self-doubt, procrastination, fear, lack of self-belief, arrogance, perfectionism, all of the kind of things that prevent each of us as individuals from living the life that we should live, you know, and you've had to go through that process after your accident. You've had to ask yourself, you know, what do I love? What do I want to do? What's important to me? And I think a lot of times, well, now many, many people who are stuck at home or have lost their jobs or whatever are being thrown back, which is the challenge we've always had to ask ourselves, what do we really want? Why are we here? Who am I? What is my purpose? How can I help my family? How can I serve? How can I live out my life, my real life? Not live somebody else's life, but my own life. And that's a hell of a hard thing. And nobody teaches you how to do that in school. And and there are a lot of uh, ways, negative ways, shadow ways, that we can run away from that challenge to face our own selves. And one way is to pick up a gun and put on a, a Hawaiian shirt or put on, you know, a pseudo militia thing and pretend to be, you know, James Bond or whatever the hell we're pretending to be, which is just an absolute shadow expression of what the real war is, which is in here, you know? So, yeah, I think a lot of people in this COVID era are coming face to face with their own resistance. And, but of course, practically nobody even knows what that is. It's all unconscious. It's all below the surface. So it's a real, like I say, we're maybe in act two of a, you know, in our favor as Americans, no other country has ever faced this. Nobody's ever really had to do what, what we're trying to do here. You know, if you're, I've always kind of said this, and I believe it, at least until maybe a few years ago, if you were in France, if you lived in France, it's not true now because of the immigrants that have come in from Algeria and from everywhere else. But if you were in France, you were basically French, right? It was no problem. All you had to do was, but in America, we're a melting pot. We've got you know, everybody here, you know, we're the future, we're the world, you know, and it's a hard thing to deal with. And a lot of people can't deal with it to include the other, whatever that is. Um, that's a real challenge. Nobody else has really had to face that like we have. So I will give us a little credit that we're on the cutting edge of dealing with the shit that everybody's going to have to deal with sooner or later and probably a lot sooner. I, I agree. When they look at the happiest countries in the world, a lot of them are obviously much smaller than the states. Yes. But their population is definitely just more centrally located around. Yeah, homogeneous population. Yeah, how hard is it to be Swedish? You know, it's a piece of cake. Yeah, or, or Danish. Yeah, the Danes are happy because they're all Danes. Yeah, right. Not to mention that we're protecting them militarily and they don't even have to worry about that. Absolutely. So and I love what you said that we don't get taught how to do 
quote unquote, the inner work. And 2020 is a big inner work, know thyself project. And we don't necessarily know how to deal with it. And I go into companies all the time and you know everyone likes to do workshops. I, I have a thing called post-traumatic workshop disorder where you... <laughs> That's great. I love that. I've never heard that. That's great. You feel good. Yeah. You feel good in the workshop and then three days later, and then you go back to your old ways you know, after. But until we really address that, and it's, it's hard work to do in a corporation, you know, regardless of how vulnerable we want to be, it's still really, really hard work. And the work doesn't necessarily change until we do some of that work because that work is up in our head too. You know, it's, it's the resistance. I, I think 2020, if, for those that want to lean into it, though it is a great opportunity to do the work around purpose, values, why am I here, uh, that internal struggle. Because when that gets clearer, then at least we have a shot at trying to get past the capital R resistance. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why Seth and the work that he's doing, Seth Godin, is so important because he really talks about how to make this transformation within a corporate setting. With, you know, where you're dealing with a product that may be not too ethical, you know, or maybe has does some good, but also does some evil out there in the world. And, and you're a cog in a machine. And how do you ethically and morally handle yourself, you know, and, and in your interactions with customers and clients and stuff like that. And, and um, so he's, he's great at doing that. No, he's terrific. The linchpin, right? So uh, how to be a linchpin. Well, I want to get you out and allow you to begin to start to enjoy more of your morning out west with a final question uh, around the Blind Children's Center in LA, because that's the charity of your choice that we made a donation to. And I would love for you to speak more about the center and the work that they do and how they shape and change lives out there. Well, actually, I don't really even know too much about it. I just sort of thought that for some reason for me, it's really sort of in honor of a friend of mine who died and um, who actually had an accident almost exactly like yours, a head-on motorcycle. And um, his charities were always for blind children. And for, for somehow, maybe it's the metaphor of that, that that I can relate to. But I thought that that's really, if you want to help somebody, that's a great you know, people to help. So thank you for for reaching out for them and, and to them. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know anything specific about the Blind Children's Center here, just that they're helping children that are visually impaired. Oh, that's great. It's great work. And it's, it was an honor to dive into their work more and and make a donation on your behalf. And I'm glad that you chose them. I think it's, you know, you can give the them a power to you know step into the world and interact and connect and that's what we need more of i think at this moment in time is that type of connection and support for one another to get through one wild and crazy year which uh probably won't end when we flip into 2021 it will still be a little wild and crazy so uh in fact to sort of wrap that up michael going through this covid this political year we're all blind children you know we're certainly children. We're not, America is an adolescent country. We're not a mature country. We're only 200 and something years old. And we're certainly blind. You know, we can't see the other side. We can't see the end. And so, you know, maybe that metaphor applies to all of us. And it's not just, 
you know, just a simple charity. So thank you for doing it. No, I know my our pleasure, my pleasure. And the analogy to teenagers for any parent out there that has had had a teenager or dealing with a teenager teenager right now, the behavior of our country is eerily similar to that of a teenager. Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you, I'll say one thing political. If you look at our president, he acts like a 14-year-old boy, never stops doing it. I've never seen any action of his that is more mature than that. If you think of making fun of disabled people, abusing women, you know, cheating, all of the stuff that that uh, a sort of a macho posturing to the point of preposterousness and absurdity. And um, so I didn't want to get too political, but we are a young country and uh, we've got a young leader in the worst sense of the world. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I, it's uh, it's childlike, it's bully-like behavior. You know, uh, po- policy is a side. It's just how you're showing up and tuning in and he's showing up and tuning in as a, a 14 year old boy. So, uh, you know, I don't know how to, it's, it's hard to reach across that divide, but that's what we got to do. We got to do it. Well, yeah. one pedal stroke at a time or one step at a time. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining me and joining us and sharing your wisdom. And I know a whole bunch of ho- folks will check out your series on Instagram and uh, they're already loving your book. And so thank you for writing. And again, for the population as a whole, but for me personally, your book was seminal in terms of helping me get past my resistance to write my book. So uh, thank you again for doing so. Oh, great. Well, I'm glad that shift is out there. And uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm happy that maybe my work contributed a tiny bit to that. You did it. It was your story. God bless you. And thanks for having me on. Ah, you're welcome, Stephen.